The Scottish Parliament has been recalled to debate the latest on the pandemic. We move to zero level on Monday as England prepares to open up further. You're not going to shut Lillard any up. <laughs> I'll be there all the time. I, I love being an MSP. I love representing the area that I grew up in, North East Fife, uh, and I'm determined to make sure their voice is heard uh, in Parliament. So I'll be seeking every single opportunity I can get to make my voice heard. But who'll replace Willie Rennie? Surely it'll be the man I described five years ago on this programme as the leader-in-waiting, Edinburgh Western MSP Alex Cole Hamilton. We'll hear from both of them later. But first, Nicola Sturgeon is not ruling out placing signs at the border to tell visitors Scotland has different Covid regulations from England. So please put your mask on. As all of Scotland prepares to go into level zero with some restrictions from this Monday, the First Minister is ready to take the flag by continuing aspects of social distancing and face coverings. This is a time for continued caution, for government to take the tough decisions necessary to help safeguard the health and well-being of the country. That means while Scotland will move to level zero from next Monday, we will do so with certain modifications to our original indicative plans. This is intended to ensure that our pace of easing restrictions need to face from the Delta variant. And I will also confirm that certain mitigations, such as the mandatory wearing of face coverings, will remain in place, not just now, but in all likelihood for some time to come. It is important to stress that measures like the continued wearing of face coverings are important not just to give added protection to the population as a whole, but also to give protection and assurance to those amongst us who are particularly vulnerable and who previously had to shield. Lifting all restrictions and mitigations right now would put all of us at greater risk but in particular, it would make it much more difficult for the most clinically vulnerable to go about their normal lives. It would risk the imposition of shielding by default, and in my view, that is not something we should do. Another positive is that vaccination is definitely weakening the link between case numbers and severe acute illness. In January, more than 10% of people who tested positive had to go to hospital. That is now around 3%. It's also the case that people admitted to hospital with COVID are being discharged more quickly uh, than previously. All of this reflects the fact that a much greater proportion of cases now are in younger people who are much less likely to become seriously ill. However, for all of these welcome signs, there are still reasons to be concerned and certainly not complacent about the current level of infection. Firstly, if case numbers are high, even just 3% ending up in hospital puts pressure on the NHS, and we can see that already. Three weeks ago, there were 171 people with COVID in hospital and 18 in intensive care. Today, that is 506 and 42, respectively. Now, hopefully, with new cases starting to fall, we will also see hospital admissions fall in the next few weeks. But at the moment, the pressure on the NHS is of concern. First and foremost, it means a significant number of people suffering illness. It also means more pressure on a workforce that has already given so much. And of course, it holds back NHS recovery. Every hospital bed occupied by a COVID patient is one less bed available to tackle the backlog of non-COVID care. Another reason to take the current level of infection seriously is the risk of long COVID. Many people, including young people, who get the virus but never need hospital care will still suffer long COVID. It's important to remember that this is a condition that experts still don't yet fully understand, but we do know that it is causing misery for many. Indeed, it is one of the main reasons that, in my view, we cannot be complacent about young people getting this virus. To say that it just doesn't matter when we don't yet fully understand what the long-term consequences might be for some young people would risk treating them as an experiment. And it won't surprise anybody to hear that I don't think we should do that. Now, these are just some of the reasons for continued caution, even as our optimism about the impact of vaccination does continue to grow. That sense of caution is reinforced by looking at the international situation and by listening to the World Health Organization. 
Several countries across Europe, for example, Portugal and Spain, are now dealing with very sharp rises in cases. Holland has just reintroduced restrictions that were lifted at the end of June. Israel has also seen a significant rise in cases as a result of Delta, despite its very high level of vaccination. Some countries that did well in suppressing the virus last year, for example, countries in the Asia and Pacific region, are now seeing cases rise as well. Japan, for example, has decided not to allow spectators at the Olympics. As the Delta variant becomes more dominant in more countries, we are likely to see resurgences elsewhere too. There is no doubt that Delta has become, unfortunately, something of a game changer, even for countries on course to achieving full vaccine protection. So COVID does remain a threat that we must treat seriously. The Scottish Government understands, I understand the temptation to lift more restrictions more quickly. Of course, we understand that. But in our view, and in line with clinical advice and modelling, a gradual approach stands the best chance of minimising further health harm and loss of life. And also because a gradual approach stands the best chance of being a sustainable approach, it will be better in the long term for the economy as well. So we will continue to ease restrictions. Uh, we are not slamming on the brakes, but we will do so carefully. Let me turn then to the detail of our decisions. From Monday 19th of July, all parts of Scotland not currently there will move to level zero. However, this move will be made with certain modifications applied consistently across the country to ensure that we are not easing up faster than is sensible given the current situation that we face. Full details of the changes are on our website, but I will highlight some key points just now. In level zero, up to eight people from up to four households can meet indoors at home, compared to six people from three households in levels one and two. Up to 10 people from up to four households can meet in a public indoor space, such as a pub or restaurant, and up to 15 people from up to 15 households can meet outdoors, whether in a private garden or public space. Now, children under 12 already don't count towards the total number of people, and from Monday, they will not count towards the total number of households either. In level zero, up to 200 people can attend weddings and funerals. Soft play centres can open, as they could at level one, but not at level two. And for hospitality businesses at level zero, unlike in level two, there is no requirement for customers to pre-book a two-hour slot to go to a pub or restaurant. However, customers will still be required to provide contact details to help test and protect, and they will still be required to wear face coverings, except when seated. There will still be limits on the size of events and stadia attendances, uh, but these will increase outdoors to 2,000 seated and 1,000 standing, and indoors to 400. As of now, uh, as uh, like now, organisers will be able to apply to stage larger events. Let me turn now to the modifications to our indicative plans. Uh, firstly, hospitality venues in level zero in all parts of Scotland will require to close at midnight. This is a change to what we had previously indicated for level zero, uh, that venues would follow local licensing rules. And this reflects the fact that indoor hospitality, despite the sector's sterling efforts, and I want to pay tribute to those, does remain a relatively risky environment, particularly later at night, when people might be less likely to follow rules. A midnight closing time represents progress from level one and level two, but it will still help to mitigate some of that additional risk. The second modification is to physical distancing. And let me be clear, what I'm about to set out applies to public places. We had already removed the requirement to distance for groups of family and friends meeting in private houses and gardens, as long as these are within permitted limits. In indoor public places, as indicated previously, where there isn't already a one-meter rule in place, the physical distance requirement will reduce from two meters to one meter and will apply between different household groups. The main modification is in relation to outdoor public places. We had hoped to lift physical distancing outdoors completely and, by extension, remove any limit on the numbers who can gather together outdoors. However, for precautionary reasons at this stage, we intend to keep in place a limit on the size of outdoor group gatherings. As indicated earlier, this will be up to 15 people from up to 15 households. Because meeting outdoors is less risky than indoors, there will be no requirement to distance 
within these groups of 15 if there are different households. However, for the next three weeks at least, there will be a requirement for one metre distancing between different groups of 15. The Economy Secretary intends to work with the event sector on guidance uh, to explore how events already er organised might still go ahead with appropriate modifications. The final and perhaps most substantial modification to what we had indicatively planned relates to working from home. We had indicated that a gradual return to the office could begin from level zero, but given the current situation, we intend to postpone this until we move beyond level zero, which we still hope will be on the 9th of August. Until then, we will continue to ask employers to support home working where possible. I know this will be disappointing for many businesses and also indeed for some employees who are finding home working hard, but this will reduce the extent to which people are meeting up in enclosed environments or travelling together, and so in this phase will help to contain transmission. Officer, I hope that the move to level zero, albeit in a modified form, will be welcomed. It is not a complete and wholesale lifting of all restrictions. It was never intended to be. However, it does restore yet more freedom to all of us. Indeed, it is worth emphasising that we are no longer in lockdown, nothing like it. Life is much more normal than at any time since the start of this pandemic. But the gradual approach we are taking means that sensible precautions will remain in place to limit transmission while we make even more progress on vaccination. To that end, as I indicated earlier, we will also keep in place uh, certain other measures, such as the requirement to wear face coverings, cooperate with test and protect, and comply with advice on good hygiene and ventilation. And on the issue of mandating mitigations like face coverings, let me just say this. It is my view that if government believes measures like this matter, and this government does, we should say so. We should do what is necessary to ensure compliance, and we should be prepared to take any resulting flack from those who disagree. We shouldn't lift important restrictions to make our lives easier and then expect the public to take responsibility for doing the right thing anyway. Signing officer, I have addressed today the move to level zero. We previously indicated that we hope to move beyond level zero on 9 August. That remains our expectation. By then, almost everyone over 40 will have had the second dose at least two weeks previously. However, as with today's decisions, we will assess the data before coming to a final decision near the time, and I will provide a further update in the week before 9 August. Finally today, I want to confirm our future intentions in relation to the requirement for close contacts of positive cases to self-isolate. We know how onerous and disruptive this is. So, firstly, when we move beyond level zero, we intend to remove the blanket requirement for close contacts to self-isolate as long as they are double vaccinated, with at least two weeks having passed since the second dose, and take a PCR test that comes back negative. And we'll publish guidance on the practical operation of this shortly. Second, as part of our wider preparations for the new academic term, we've asked our education advisory group for advice on whether, to what extent, and with what mitigations we can remove the self-isolation requirement for young people in education settings who are close contacts of positive cases. And we'll set out our conclusions well in advance of the new term. We are, of course, still waiting for advice from the JCVI on whether children over 12 should be vaccinated. Lastly, from Monday, uh, the 19th of July, self-isolation will no longer be required for people arriving from countries on the AMBER list, provided they are fully vaccinated through a UK vaccination programme and take a PCR test on the second day after arrival. We will, though, continue to take a precautionary approach to the inclusion of countries on the AMBER list. And notwithstanding this change, we do continue to advise against non-essential overseas travel at this time. To avoidance of doubt, let me be clear that anyone testing positive for or experiencing symptoms of COVID will still require to isolate for 10 days. Despite the impact of Delta, vaccination is allowing us to continue to ease restrictions, albeit cautiously. That will be a relief to the vast majority, but it will be a source of anxiety to some. So let me address again those at the highest clinical risk, many of whom previously shielded. I know many of you feel anxious about any easing of restrictions, particularly if you can't have the vaccine or if you have conditions are, or are on treatment that suppress your immune system. The Scottish Government is very aware of that. We will not abandon you. For as long as necessary, we will ask people to take sensible precautions 
like the wearing of face coverings to allow you, like everyone else, to enjoy more normal life again. We're also launching a survey this week for those on the highest risk list to tell us what additional support you may need, and the Chief Medical Officer will write to you this week with further advice. Lastly, we know that there are around 13,000 people at high clinical risk who haven't yet had both doses of the vaccine. So if you are one of them and if you are able to get vaccinated, please do so. Let's hear then from the opposition party leaders and we start with Douglas Ross for the Scottish Conservatives. He says Scotland has shown itself to be an incredibly compliant country under the rigid restrictions of the past 16 months. But he fears public confidence is dropping and wants more done on test and protect, vaccine rollout and treatment for long COVID. For the past 16 months, the public have made huge sacrifices. Their lives have been upturned. They've missed out on so many special occasions and moments that they won't get back. Yet they have done what is necessary with incredible dedication. Before this pandemic struck, we could have found it unbelievable if a government had told people to stay inside their own homes for 23 hours a day, restrict how far we could travel, force people to miss the birth of their children and the final moments of a loved one's life. And we would have found it equally unbelievable that the overwhelming majority of the public, almost everyone, would follow these restrictions assiduously, putting the good of our country first. People across Scotland and the United Kingdom deserve our utmost thanks and appreciation for everything they've done. But now is right time to move forward. We can't continue asking the public to sacrifice so much of their lives when we promised them that the vaccine would bring an end to restrictions. Consequences for mental health, physical health and family finances have already been catastrophic. The balance has to tilt further in favour of moving forward. We have to make progress back to normality. The public have done what was expected of them. Now it's time for this SNP government to deliver and hold up their end of the bargain. So it's welcome that Scotland will move to level zero next week with some minor modifications and that self-isolation rules for people travelling will be relaxed. However, while the statement provides some of the clarity and answers we expected, the challenges are still piling up for this SNP government on multiple fronts. On case and protect, standards have dropped. Instead of re- restoring those high standards, the SNP have lowered the bar and weakened the criteria, as reports this week have uncovered. On the vaccine rollout, which has happened at a phenomenal pace across the whole of the United Kingdom and allowed us to safely ease restrictions at a faster pace, progress here in Scotland has now slowed. Today's figures are the worst in three months. On NHS readiness, we have multiple on breaking point declaring code black status. On long COVID, an illness that has the potential to overwhelm our NHS if it's not tackled seriously, the SNP government have been slow to act and are refusing to consider our proposals for a network of long COVID clinics. And parents are still anxiously waiting to hear if their children will need to self-isolate after a year of disrupted learning. So let me ask the First Minister, will she listen to our request for additional resources to boost test and protect and return it to the same standards as before? Now that the vaccine rollout is at its lowest level in months, what is being done to increase that pace? By what date will the Education Advisory Group publish their findings to allow parents, pupils and teachers to know for sure if self-isolation rules will continue in schools? Will the First Minister finally agree to launch a network of long COVID clinics as we proposed? And to be absolutely clear, will the First Minister tell the country, if it takes until the middle of September to double vaccinate all adults, will that have an impact on the plan to ease almost all restrictions on the 9th of August? Thank you. Thank you. First Minister. Um, thank you, Presiding uh, Officer. Uh, firstly, can I... Again, I I will never find the words adequate to express my gratitude to people across the country, Um, but I hope everybody knows uh, that I feel that sense of gratitude uh, for the sacrifices everybody has made uh, and continues to make. Uh, Secondly, we are moving forward um, thanks to those sacrifices and the power of vaccination, but, and this is 
a critically important point. We are choosing to do this at a responsible pace, not an irresponsible pace, because the price of irresponsibility in the face of a pandemic of an infectious and dangerous virus will be more people becoming seriously acutely ill, more people suffering the impacts of long COVID, uh, more people dying, and more damage to our economy and society in the longer term. So a gradual, steady, careful, cautious path forward is the right one, uh, and one that I am absolutely uh, prepared to defend. On the specific questions, Test and Protect is always going to be under pressure when cases are rising. We are making additional resources available as appropriate. Additional staff are being employed uh, to support the Test and Protect operation, and uh, some of the pressure uh, that we have seen in the last week or so, uh, we uh, believe is abating because of that. And changes are being made as we go through are being made as we go through this pandemic to make sure that the approach to contact tracing, just as we are uh, changing the approach to self-isolation, the approach to contact tracing is effective, proportionate, and notifies people as quickly as possible. Um, and that is the work that Test and Protect has been doing and will continue to do because it remains a vital part of our protection. And again, I want to thank uh, all those working so hard in that system across the country. Um, on vaccine rollout, I'm going to be blunt here. Uh, anybody who is suggesting that there is somehow uh, some uh, issue with a slowing down of the vaccine rollout that is anything other uh, than associated with perfectly understandable reasons is either deliberately or inadvertently displaying, um, I think, a, a lack of understanding of the issues behind the vaccination programme. Uh, there are two uh, constraining factors on the pace of rollout, uh, one that has always been there and one that has kicked in as we go into second doses. The first is the volumes of supply. Uh, they, uh, are, uh, they tend to ebb and flow, although they are healthy at the moment and not causing us concern at the moment. But the second, as we go into second doses, is the uh, clinically advised gap of eight weeks between the first and second dose. So, frankly, when you've had your first dose, we can't give you the second dose until eight weeks have passed. So if we did a certain number of vaccinations on this day eight weeks ago, that limits the number of vaccinations we can do today. We are vaccinating as quickly as possible uh, within those constraints, and any look at uh, our vaccination rates relative to England uh, would show that we are all uh, achieving uh, the same uh, performance in that respect. Um, and we continue to do everything we can to make sure that rollout continues. On hospital pressures, uh, hospitals are under pressure uh, because of the reasons I've set out. We just uh, last week or the week before announced uh, significant additional resources to help health boards cope with that. But of course, the way we reduce pressure on our hospitals is to reduce the impact of COVID, which is another reason for this, the cautious path I set out today. It makes uh, it, it, there is no logic and no consistency in, on the one hand, asking us to go faster in easing restrictions, and on the other hand, complaining about pressures in our hospitals, because the, the latter would be exacerbated by the former. So a bit of consistency here, I think, would go um, a long way. On long COVID, uh, we will uh, take the steps that are necessary on long COVID. We have invested heavily in research so that we are understanding the specialist provision and the greater generalist provision that has to be provided. But people suffering from long COVID uh, should uh, go uh, and consult their GP, who will then offer them and point them to uh, the proper uh, services. And we will continue to develop those services as our knowledge develops as well. Uh, and lastly, I think, and apologies if I've missed uh, any of the points of detail, which I'm happy to come back to later, on schools. Um, it's right that we consider this properly. There are a number of interrelated issues, self-isolation in schools, uh, other mitigations like the wearing of face coverings, uh, and the use of bubbles uh, in parts of our education system uh, that we have to consider in the round. Uh, the decision that will come hopefully soon from the JCVI on uh, vaccinating younger people will have a, a bearing on this. So we are rightly taking the time to try to get this right. But as I've said, we will set this out uh, well ahead of the start of the new term, and I hope to have advice from the Education uh, Expert Advisory Group soon. Uh, and lastly, sorry, I think lastly, on the 9th of August, we, we are on track to meet that vaccine milestone uh, for the 9th of August. Uh, there is nothing that suggests we will not meet that. But as is the case today, I, the government, will have to take a rounded view ahead of the 9th of August on what is safe, 
responsible and sensible to do. And that's what we will do. My job right now is not to take easy decisions for the benefit of good headlines, although uh, I'm not sure that would be wise for me for a, a whole range of other reasons either. My job is to take the decisions I think are best uh, placed to keep this country as safe as possible. I hope that the 9th of August will see the further lifting of all the major remaining legal restrictions, but that is a decision I will take not to make my life easier or generate good headlines. I will take that decision in the interest of the overall country, and I will be prepared to uh, accept any of the flack and criticism for those who disagree with those decisions. That is my job. That is my responsibility. For Labour, Anas Sarwar says the vaccine is working, but it is not yet winning the race against the virus. There is no doubt that the, the inconsistent decision-making and inconsistent communications over the past few weeks has had a negative impact on the pandemic response. The high rate of cases is a cause of concern. I am afraid what the First Minister has presented today is not a clear strategy to cope with the new phase of the pandemic. It is a set of welcome changes on restrictions, many complicated, but big problems still remain. This new phase requires a new approach. After 16 months, we are still not maximising our testing capacity. Despite the best effort of our NHS staff, issues remain with test and protect, and despite adequate supplies, vaccine rollout has slowed. So will the First Minister commit to simplifying the communications and ensure consistent decision-making, because that is crucial to maintaining public trust confidence? Will she more proactively work with business to make best use of our testing capacity? And after 16 months, will she fully resource and fix, test and protect once and for all so we can identify and isolate this virus? Even when we have completed vaccine rollout, we will still need a functioning tracing system and after 16 months, we have still not got far enough. Will she work now to pandemic-proof our workplaces and our schools? I hear what she says around it being an advance of the start of the school term, but the school term is just four weeks away, so we can't delay that workplace and schools proofing for the pandemic. And will, she, will the government increase the value and the eligibility of the self-isolation grant so we can better support families? And finally, the First Minister rightly said in her statement, that we should listen to the WHO. Well, she needs to listen to the WHO on vaccine. The vaccine is working, but is not yet winning the race with the virus. The WHO advice is to administer the second dose of the vaccine after three to four weeks. The manufacturer's advice is to administer the vaccine after three to four weeks. And many countries across the world are administering the second dose of the vaccine after four weeks. And we know from the data that the significant protection you get to the Delta variant comes from the second dose of the vaccine. So will the government now move to a four-week gap between vaccines as recommended by the WHO, as recommended by manufacturers, and has been led by other countries around the world? Testing, facing, vaccine, financial support, pandemic-proofing our workplaces and schools, that is the new next phase and the new approach we require as we go forward from this pandemic. First Minister. Uh, with the greatest of respect to Anna Sawa, and I will treat all of his questions with uh, the greatest of respect, there was uh, quite a lot of glib sound bites in those questions, um, not a huge amount of substance, and frankly, uh, a little bit of irresponsibility. And I'll start with the, the latter first. Uh, we take our advice in Scotland on vaccination from the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation. In the entire lifetime of this Parliament, uh, no devolved government has gone against the recommendations of the JCVI on vaccination. Uh, the JCVI advice is that to maximise the effectiveness of the vaccine and the longevity of the protection of the vaccine, the dosage interval should be eight weeks between the first and the second dose. Now, if I was to stand here and say, notwithstanding the advice from the statutory uh, organisation uh, that advises us on these issues, that I was disregarding that as a politician and doing something else. I am pretty certain that one of the first people in the queue to criticise me would be Anna Sarwar and his colleagues. It would be unthinkable for me to go against the advice of the JCVI. The JCVI is, I understand, looking at this question again. If it was to recommend reducing the dosage uh, interval, there is nobody or very few people that would be happier to do that than me. But it is absolutely incumbent on politicians on these very sensitive matters where one of the most important things is to maintain public confidence in vaccines uh, to follow that clinical advice. And I think any politician uh, asking for us to do uh, differently to that is being, I'm sorry to say, uh, irresponsible. Uh, so if the advice changes, 
the, the position of this government will change, uh, but we will prioritise maintaining uh, confidence in the vaccine. Um, in terms of the, what I've described as glib soundbites, pandemic-proofing workplaces and schools, of course we want to make uh, places as safe as possible against uh, COVID, but to try to underplay the complexities and the, the challenges in that does nobody any favours. Uh, we need to think carefully, uh, particularly in light of changing and developing understanding of this virus. And one of the things that has changed, although some scientists would say this was always known, uh, but one of the things that has certainly become much more uh, apparent in our thinking is the airborne uh, transmission of this virus. So we are doing work now on what more we can do around ventilation, particularly in places like schools and hospitals and key workplaces. But we need, again, to make sure that we are not stuck in rigid ways of thinking on these things, and we are constantly updating and developing that. And that does take uh, time, and it takes the best clinical advice, and we will continue to do that. So we will uh, issue guidance for schools well in advance of the new term, but we will do that when we have taken proper advice and come to proper decisions. Um, and then on some of the other things, on testing capacity and vaccine rollout, I mean, I, I'll keep getting asked these questions perfectly legitimately, and I'll keep answering them as patiently as I possibly can. Uh, there is nobody who needs a test in this country who can't get one. Uh, we have extended routine regular testing uh, to the whole population through lateral flow devices. PCR testing demand is very much demand-driven. So if you've looked at the figures over the last few weeks, it's been high as case rates have risen. As case rates start to fall again, that demand starts to fall because there are fewer people, thankfully, with symptoms coming forward for testing. The pressure from time to time on the system is firstly through the turnaround times, but that they have stood up well under pressure and on contact tracing. And I've set out already the work we're doing to make sure test and protect in that protect part of the, the function is operating as we need it to do. And that will continue uh, to be a priority for us. And lastly, I think on vaccine rollout, I've already covered this in relation uh, in response to Douglas Ross. Vaccine rollout is not slowing because somehow we're not managing to do the vaccine rollout properly. The constraining factors in the vaccine rollout are, as I've set out, supply and the dosing interval. We are vaccinating as quickly as those constraints allow. And the vaccination programme is a, a shining success right now and is offering us the way out of this. And for that reason, we'll continue to do all we can to accelerate it, including, if the JCVI recommend it, shortening the interval between the first and second doses. Still to come, Ruth Davidson condemns the UK government's decision to slash overseas aid. The policy went through the House of Commons this week, supported by all Scottish Tory MPs. Back to this week's recall of the Scottish Parliament. For the Scottish Greens, Lorna Slater is worried about reopening Scotland and the wider UK. She says the British Medical Association is warning the UK government's plans are perilous and irresponsible. Lorna Slater says it's too early to restart large events here. The Scottish Greens have long supported a cautious approach that prioritises saving lives and preventing illness. We have concerns about reducing restrictions while case numbers are so high and with so many not yet double vaccinated, particularly as it may encourage the emergence of vaccine-resistant variants. The BMA have warned that the UK government's plans are perilous and irresponsible, and you don't need to look far to see where this could end up. Just yesterday, the Dutch Prime Minister had to apologise for lifting restrictions too soon as cases surged. We are particularly worried about those who remain vulnerable and for young people who may be asked to return to work or study without being fully vaccinated. The First Minister has said she does not want to treat young people as an experiment, yet the majority of those in the hospitality sector are young and not fully vaccinated. Doesn't she think it is too early to restart large indoor events, which will likely be largely staffed by young people and could become super spreader events? First um, Minister... oh, sorry. Sorry, President Officer, I was uh, jumping in a bit too quickly there. Um, can I thank Lorna Slater for uh, those questions? I think all of them perfectly sensible and, and legitimate. Um, we will always, uh, and from day one, have faced you know, two uh, extremes in terms of criticism of our approach. And again, you know, it's perfectly understandable. There, there has always been uh, voices wanting us to go faster in lifting restrictions and voices wanting us to go slower in lifting restrictions. Our job 
uh, not always easy and we haven't always got the balance right is to, to try to get the best path, the safest path through this. If I am to err, I will always try to err on the side of going more cautiously than too quickly because the, the consequences of going uh, more cautiously uh, will not be felt in the same loss of life as the consequences of, of going too quickly and being irresponsible about it. But that will always be a balance we, we have to, to seek to get right. And that applies to the specific question around young people. Um, we are vaccinating over 18s as quickly as possible, and as I set out in my statement, uh, making really good progress there. And the, uh, all over 18s now have at least their first dose appointment scheduled, uh, and will have the first dose shortly, and then second doses eight weeks on from that. So that is the key priority. Um, we then need to make sure that in lifting restrictions, we are taking account of the fact that younger people will uh, take longer to be fully vaccinated. So while we are lifting some of the attendance limits around events and stadium attendances, we're not taking an upper limit off. We are still being cautious about that. And any events organiser wanting to have a bigger event, such as we've seen through uh, the Euros recently, will have to go through a process of application so that all of the mitigations can properly be assessed. So everything we're doing here is, yes, about trying to get us back to normal, but doing that in a way that is proportionate, precautionary, and is taking account of the fact that those often most exposed to this virus will be those who have uh, the least protection. Um, I am not prepared to shrug my shoulders and say that it doesn't matter that young people get infected with this virus because we don't yet understand the long-term implications of it. So that necessitates, in my view, the cautious path we are taking that no doubt some will criticise us for because it is not me standing up here and crying Freedom Day uh, anytime soon. I think trying to declare premature victory against this virus is a, a fool's paradise, and we should not do it um, because it will be other people who pay the price for that. So I will continue to try to be cautious, responsible, um, and you know I will not claim to always get it right. I never have done, and I never will. Uh, but we will try to do the right things at every step, taking account of the best clinical advice. For probably the last time as Scottish Lib Dem leader, here's Willie Rennie. Uh, that's not a wild prediction by me, by the way. Mr Rennie has decided to stand down as leader after more than 10 years in the post. We'll hear from him later in the week in Holyrood on his plans, but for now, here's Willie Rennie in the chamber. The three code blacks issued by our hospitals in the last week means long-awaited operations have been cancelled. GP appointments are also off, pharmacies closed, waste not collected, and social care impacted too. It is in large part because thousands of key workers are self-isolating, even though they have tested negative. I support the call from the Royal Colleges for a test and release system so these people can return to work. Is this being considered? And if so, when could it be in place? Because the situation is urgent now. And probably for the last time as Liberal Democrat leader, can I ask the First Minister what she's got to say to the thousands of adults with special needs and their families? They have been without services since the pandemic started and are desperate for support and respite. When can they expect full services to return? First Minister. Uh, thanks. Uh, and let me take the opportunity to wish Willie Rennie all the best in his uh, Retirement, uh, not from Parliament, obviously, or from, from public life, but uh, as leader of the Scottish Liberal Democrats. Uh, I, I think uh, 10 years is a, a good shift uh, that he's put in there, and I'm sure we all uh, wish him well. Um, on, I'll, I'll come to the second question first, if, if I may. Um, wh what we have confirmed today is, I think, very positive in terms of getting services for adults with uh, disabilities back to much greater normality. As I've set out before, it's not been the case that these services have been uh, compulsorily closed, but because of two metres physical distancing, there has been a practical difficulty on the part of operators in opening them up uh, as normal. So the move from two metres to one metre physical distancing indoors should pave the way uh, to much greater normality, and I, I know that will be welcome and uh, bring uh, much needed relief to many in that category. Um, in terms of the first question, I should say in passing that when health boards or individual hospitals within health boards are uh, announcing the pausing of elective non-COVID treatment, 
Um, we want that to be for as short a period of time as possible. Um, so that's not uh, something that is going to happen, and then you know we just accept that for a long period of time. This is something that is kept dynamically under review, and we want to minimise that as much as possible. There is a great emphasis right now on trying to get the NHS back to normal and the backlog of non-COVID care uh, well uh, underway in, in being addressed. Um, but the best way to, to do that is to keep COVID pressure to a minimum. And again, that comes back to my central point today. We must take a cautious path through this. Otherwise, we do risk pressure on our NHS, setting all of that backwards. Uh, I'm grateful to Willie Rennie for raising the issue of self-isolation of close contacts who work in the health service and social care. And this may apply to other critical uh, parts of society and the economy as well. I didn't mention it specifically for reasons of time in my uh, opening remarks, but I'll address it now. As I said in my opening remarks, we do hope to move, as we go beyond level zero, to a position uh, where we move away from the blanket requirement for close contacts of positive cases to uh, isolate, uh, to a position where if somebody is double vaccinated and gets a negative PCR test, uh, they, can no longer, they will no longer have to self-isolate, even if they're a close contact. Positive cases will have to still self-isolate. We are considering, uh, perhaps ahead of that, whether that kind of system could be introduced for some key groups in our workforce, and obviously health and social care fall within that category. We are discussing that right now with trade unions, uh, amongst others, and we will listen carefully to views. I am um, very mindful of the fact that when I talk about this, as Willie Rennie has, rightly, as something that would help keep key essential services going, People who work in those essential services might hear this differently. They might hear it as us uh, giving less protection to their health and well-being. So we need to be careful and cautious about this, as we do about everything else. Uh, we will update Parliament if we move more quickly in any areas uh, before what I set out today. But it is, in answer to the question, something that is under active consideration. <music>
somebody new to come along and you know take it forward and I'm confident that we'll find an excellent new leader uh, and I'll be with them every step of the way. It wasn't a great election outcome for you this year, has that uh, been one of the reasons that has taken you to step down? I mean we've had some you know gains and some losses over the kind of last 10 years, I've had some great celebrations and in fact this time round we had some astonishing constituency results. I wish I could have spread that over the rest of the country, but you know, I'm sure that's part of the reason why you decide to to move on, to allow somebody else to to move it upwards uh, and onwards. Um, but there's many factors. You know, um, I've been through many many campaigns, and you know, sometimes it's really just probably the right thing to allow somebody else uh, to take it on. Um, it's a great job, and I probably shouldn't keep it all to myself. So it's time for somebody else to have a shot. But you look as if you've thoroughly enjoyed it over the years, and this is where the journalism questions do kick in. Um, what's been the high and what's been the low? It, probably the low um, was the loss of, of Charles Kennedy. Um, that was really bitter um, and just so devastating. You know, the man was unwell, but we never saw it coming as quickly as that. And that, that was just heart-wrenching. Um, and having to deal with the aftermath with his family and his friends, it was, it was really tough. Um, probably the highs is actually getting kind of recognition for mental health services that it desperately needed. It's something that I think people know that I care deeply about. A lot of my friends have um, suffered from poor mental health and I've been determined to try and improve the quality of services. And I think they've managed to nudge that forward with the government. When you look back over the various campaigns, which has been the most exciting, perhaps, for you? And uh, the outcome you've been happiest with, I presume, would be the 2014 referendum. Uh, yes, it was, it was a good campaign. It was great to win. Um, I would have liked to have been a bit more conclusive so we could have put that issue um, to bed because it, it keeps coming up and dominating our politics, I don't think, in, in a good way. Um, I think winning in North East Fife um, winning uh, for Wendy Chamberlain in, in 2019 after losing so narrowly um, the time before. Uh, results like Jamie Stones in, in the far north, um, Christine Jardin, Alex Hamilton's result. Um, you know, there's some really cracking results, some great by-elections uh, as well. And of course, the, the European elections, unexpected European elections in 2019, where we managed to get Sheila Ritchie over the line. You know, all those were, were great, great campaigns, um, and I've enjoyed them all. But to be honest, I enjoy every single campaign. Uh, I like getting out on the doorstep, knocking on doors, speaking to people, finding out what they think, trying to do something about it, winning over their vote. You know, and we've successfully done that on many occasions. Of course, I would love to have done it uh, much more, and I'll still be there to make sure that Liberal Democrats go on to greater success. Big regret, I would imagine, is uh, coming out of European Union, something that uh, Liberal Democrats uh, are extremely unhappy about, although you're not proposing that uh, Scotland or the UK goes back in. Yeah, I mean, I'd love Scotland and the UK to be in the European Union. Of course, I'll make that case when the, the time is right. Uh, but it's important sometimes just to recognise that, that you've been beaten in the argument. Um, and it's you'll try and persuade people over a period of time to of the merits of the European Union but this is something that you know together with Scottish independence has dominated and divided our country families friends businesses um, for too long and I think it's time for a progressive alternative to the kind of twin nationalisms of the Conservatives and the SNP we need to be able to move on and try and deal with the massive challenges that we've got with Covid and climate change and the ingrained inequalities in our society those for me, for progressives, I think should be the top priority, not these endless debates about flags and countries and borders and all that stuff, which I think is just such a waste of energy and time, of talent that could be devoted towards making people's lives better is devoted to these things. Yeah, I just wish we could move on and have a progressive alternative to the twin nationalisms. So what is your advice to Alex Cole Hamilton, widely seen to be your successor? Yeah, well, the one thing that former leaders don't do is advise who the next leader should be. <laughs> but, but I will be there to, to support them. Um, I think it's 
probably um, patience. Um, I think it's listening, understanding, um, be active, uh, motivate, encourage people to do things, get people to believe that they can do great things themselves. It's not all about the leader, it's about what the members of the party can do and what the public can do. So if in a small way that you can inspire people to do more and achieve more, and then that would be a good thing for a for a leader. And that's what I've tried to do over over time. And I, I hope to be able to persuade any successor um, that that's the style that I think works. It's hard, takes a lot of time, but it's worth it. Former presiding officer Ken McIntosh uh, thanks you for your service to Parliament. I presume that you're going to continue to serve your constituents and be an active member of this parliament. Yeah, try to stop them. You're not going to shut well in any up. <laughs> I'll be there all the time. I, I love being an MSP. I love representing the area that I grew up in, North East Fife, uh, and I'm determined to make sure their voice is heard uh, in parliament. So I'll be seeking every single opportunity I can get to make my voice heard. Back into the chamber we go as the recall parliament continues to debate the pandemic. Presiding officer, Alison Johnston. I call Annabel Ewing to be followed by Annie Wells. Thank you, presiding officer. On the important issue of face coverings and taking into account the UK government's confusing mixed messaging over the last week, can the first minister make it absolutely clear for the benefit of my uh, constituents in Cowdenbeath and indeed for people across Scotland, what the current position is in Scotland as regards the wearing of face coverings and what the position will be going forwards. First Minister. Sorry, President Officer, I must uh, remember not to jump in too quickly. First point I would make is that we have been clear, I've been clear again today, that easing of restrictions must be dependent on the situation with the virus and the situation with vaccination, uh, rather than having a position where we lift restrictions regardless of the circumstances and then somehow hope that the public will still behave in a way uh, that keeps the virus under control. I, I don't think that is likely to be effective. So on face coverings in particular, as I've said already, face coverings will remain mandatory in all the places that they're mandatory right now as we move to level zero next week. As we move beyond level zero, it is highly likely, in my uh, judgment, that the mandatory wearing of face coverings, certainly in some settings, uh, will remain the position and we'll set out any detail on that nearer the time. Um, and I think wearing of face coverings is something that we are likely to be required to do for a bit longer yet. And I think, and some people will vehemently disagree with what I'm about to say here, but I think the majority of people uh, would recognise that wearing a face covering, however uncomfortable and annoying it is for all of us, is a small price to pay to protect others, because when we wear a face covering, we protect others from the possibility uh, that we might transmit the virus to them, and when they wear a face covering, they protect us uh, from that as well. Annie Wells, thank you, Presiding Officer. Figures last week showed that Test and Protect is failing to meet the World Health Organization's target for 80% of cases to be closed within 72 hours. Following this, it was revealed the SNP has moved the goalposts by dramatically cutting the Test and Protect interview script after failing to preemptively recruit more staff in anticipation of a surge in cases. First Minister. Protect is operating effectively. It's not cutting corners. Um, and we don't need a wake-up call because we have already taken action to make sure that Test and Protect can perform at the level people expect. I do think the WHO standard is important. That's why I have talked about it. Last week, Test and Protect didn't meet that standard. Uh, we'll see the latest figures uh, later this week, and I hope to see an improvement, and we'll continue to make sure that we are uh, supporting the system uh, to perform in the way that it needs to perform. And that's the Week in Holyrood Summer Special. I'm Charles Fletcher.